Hey, good morning, everyone, and welcome to EuroNurse. We meet every Saturday at 9 a.m. Central Time. Sorry for a little bit of a delay, but we always had to deal with some technology issues, and we're uh, we're all good to go here. We've uh, got a really great show for you today. Hey, listen, if you're watching us on YouTube, that's great. Be sure to hit that subscribe button and that like button so that we uh, can know that you're there. And if this is your first time joining us on Euronurse, be sure to check out our website at euronurse.com where you can find out more information on becoming a part of the show. Also, this is the best place to go if you want to look at our previous episodes. We're up to episode 27 today, so there's 26 great episodes out there that you can watch at any time on demand and live. Today's, um, you can join us with any questions that you might have by using our Q&A box. Just go ahead and put those into the Q&A box and we'll be glad to answer those. And um, today's episode is going to be a great one for you today. Uh, Indwelling catheters, current evidence for common clinical practices. That's going to be presented by Diane Newman. And let's just get right to our audience right now. I mean, to our panelists right now. I'm going to bring them all in uh, here. And Diane, why don't you start out by introducing yourself to the group? Hi, I'm Diane Newman. I'm a nurse practitioner at the University of Pennsylvania, and I've been practicing in urology um, since 1986, so almost 40 years. And all I do is pelvic floor dysfunction. I treat patients with incontinence or rectal bladder prolapse, but also I do a lot of device management, catheter management. So that's kind of what our, my topic today is going to be. Yeah, great. We're looking forward to it. And uh, I know John Lynn, one of our regular panelist is a little under the weather today. So I just, maybe just say hi. Hey, everybody. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah this is going around. He's, he's got a cold. I, I'm just getting over COVID myself. Mm-hmm. I was uh, coming back from Florida last week and I think I picked something up on the plane, but feeling much better today. I can tell you that. Uh, and Lori, go ahead and introduce yourself. I'm Lori Atkinson. I'm a certified urology registered nurse. I've been practicing for 24 years now, and I currently work for uh, Northwestern at Del Nor in Geneva, Illinois. All right, great. So we have a great group with you today, or with us today. So glad to be uh, here today to talk on our really interesting subject. Uh, got a great group of people showing up as attendees. As usual, we're here for you guys. Be sure to use that Q&A button if you have any questions or submit them ahead of time. I do have some uh, ahead of time questions I'm going to read when we get through Diane's talk. So I've already got some already primed up and ready to go. Um, since we're running a little bit behind, I thought maybe we'd just go right into Diane's presentation if you're ready. Yes. Uh, the one thing I do need to do is let me make you a co-host which should allow you then to share your screen. So. Can you see them now? Ah, perfect. Yep. Let me just put it on. Um, Click that little screen on the bottom there to, on the right hand lower corner. No, I know. I'm just trying to get oh, it. Okay. Okay. Perfect. Okay. So welcome everyone. I'm going to talk about indwelling urinary catheters and kind of, and it's a very short talk. So I'm going to try to talk a little bit about the current evidence for common clinical practices that we see. So, you know, an indwelling catheter is a closed sterile system, continual bladder drainage. It's flexible. Um, and really its use initially was always for short term, two to four weeks. Long time is considered over 30 days. And why it works is that there's a retention balloon so that it kind of sits against the bladder neck. And that's important because that can cause trauma to that area if it's pulled on. Um, And then there's uh, eyelets, which allow the urine to flow through. Um, So it's a continuous drainage out of the bladder. There's Mm -hmm. two methods of insertion, either urethral or suprapubic. And we're seeing, I think in practice, um, more use of suprapubic, switching over from an indwelling urethral and putting in a suprapubic um, catheter. Again, indications, we see it a lot in hospital patients, especially urologic patients, so short-term following surgery. Um, It is um, an alternative, a suprapubic is an alternative for chronic indwelling urethral catheters. And it's something to tell you, when I talk about evidence, there's very little evidence on suprapubic catheterization. Um, We see uh, some, quite a bit of publications post-surgery but nothing for long-term use. And I want my audience here, any nurses who are using these, please write about them, even case studies, because again, we're, they're showing up in practice. 
And um, why we started with suprapubic is because to avoid that urethrotrauma from having that indwelling catheter in, in especially a male patient. Uh, suprapubic placement, some people do as an outpatient, some people do it in their office, um, but it usually is an outpatient procedure. Uh, it's done with a guide wire where it's, you know, the bladder's accessed suprapubically. And, you know, I know we have a protocol for how you replace it initially because you want to make sure that tract is intact. So we do use guide wires for the first few changes. Um, what we see in practice is valves. I've used this actually quite a bit in my patient population um, is valves. And this is actually very common practice in Europe. I don't see it as much in the US. I see them place these valves or these, I call them catheter plugs, post-surgery when someone goes home with suprapubic, but not as much long-term. And the thing is, I think that these are um, an option. Um, you know, it is a, um, it actually, you know, clamps off by putting it in the funnel part. So there's no drainage. And there's some data to show that this intermittent drainage actually helps the bladder um, to do that as far as letting it fill up and then emptying it. Um, some people think that this helps with bladder retraining, like when you remove a catheter, but there's really no evidence on that. But these types of um, plugs with anti-catheters can be very effective. Um, there's also a bladder button. I don't know if any of you have seen this. We've used this in some patients with a suprapubic insertion. Um, and um, some people like this better, you know, nothing sticks out. So if you're having intimacy with someone, it's better. So it may have added value poten potential. And again, I see this used most often outside the US, but this is also another option. And as, so as you can see, we're evolving some of this technology in the, for the use of indwelling. Now we do see complications um, with um, indwelling catheters. I'm just gonna go over a, a few, but these complications increase. Um, as that catheter stays in. I, I want to really stress that these things, these devices were not made to be kept in long-term. Um, and the longer they stay in, the more complications you're going to see. Catheter-associated UTIs is huge. They're called CAUTIs. I, I, I still, to this day, I've been doing this work for so many years. Um, I still consult with health systems on how to reduce their infections. Um, in, in 29, 70 to 75% of all hospital required UTIs were from a year indwelling catheter, and that's Pennsylvania data. Um, those who do intermittent cath, they also have catheters um, associated UTIs, but it's much less. And of course, internal catheter has your less um, infections, but an indwelling is really the highest. And why is that? And I, I have found this, this kind of history of biofilms to be fascinating. Biofilms were first actually um, kind of reported by a dentist who saw this on teeth. And it was a collection of microorganisms that he could not get rid of with antibiotics. He had to scrape them off. And now this is, you know, costing the health system um, up to probably billions now um, because of the fact that biofilms is a collection of, of bacteria that occurs on devices that we have in the body. It could be again on teeth, catheters, any type of stents you have. And um, it's actually also in water pipes, food surfaces. So it's something to really remember, especially with the fact that we now have so much antibiotic resistant population is these biofilms are just growing. Um, and basically oral antibiotics really don't, if they're on a device, don't get rid of them. You have to actually remove the device and put in a new one. And these are not quote unquote UTIs per se, but they're, I always tell people they're like a, a spaceship, a collection a self-contained collection of bacteria. And again, they adhere to the catheter surface. And what can happen though, is they can break off and then go in the urine. And then of course, uh, you can develop a UTI from them, but it's something to remember that a lot of times they're just odd. And I mean, how many of you have um, looked at a catheter and seen how dark the urine is or whatever, and then you put in a new catheter and it's clear urine. And a lot of times it's, you're seeing that biofilm that's developed in that device. Um, and this is just showing you the proliferation. This is on a silicone catheter, which tends to have less biofilms. Two hours, you can start to see the bacteria after 18 hours, it's just totally um, coating that internal surface. Um, so they develop rapidly in urinary catheters. Um, current materials and design do not have an, an advantage. And I know you're gonna ask what about maybe silver catheters? Um, they really don't offer that we know any, um, any kind of research to show that they have less development of Biofilms, silicone catheters may, 
But the point is, is that um, there's not much you could do as far as material preventing it. Um, and it's really proteus forming uh, biofilms and they can develop encrustations, harden inside that catheter and block it. The catheter eye holes are really what is usually easily blocked in the beginning. And these are just some examples. I, I, you know, if you're taking a catheter, cut it up. I do it all the time. And you can see these in there. It's encrustations, uh, the biofilms that are really adhering to it. And these can develop, of course, into um, stones. And uh, we do see stones in this population. Now, you know, again, what kind of material that might be better? Uh, silicone, as you can see on the right here, has a bigger diameter, internal diameter. So perhaps the feeling is there may be less biofilm development. But again, not a lot of data on this. It's just speculation. And what I want, why I like this slide is that um, it shows you that uh, the diameter of, um, of, of bigger size catheters. Okay, so remember that um, those diameters are larger. The ones on the left are intermittent catheters right next to the, to the um, numbers 18, 16, 14, 12. And you can see the difference in those internal diameters. And this study, again, old studies showed that maybe uh, all silicone catheters, the time to blocking is less, I mean, is, is greater. So maybe a silicone will block less. We have to remember, you know, everyone on this um, webinar is that there's a lot of ways to get that bacteria into the system for it to de develop a cotty. So nurses are very important because it can come from you. And it could just maybe coming, be coming from your hands, the bacteria on your hands. Now we also see arthritis and erosion, especially in men. And basically this is inflammation of the meatus. And it, you know, what everyone has to remember is a catheter is a, is a foreign object in the bladder. So the body starts wanting to get rid of it. Tissue inflammation can occur and you can really have erosion occurring in this population. And I'm just giving you one picture here of a, a female meatus where you see that tearing. Sometimes us, we don't really look at women as men, of course, the penis sticks out so you can see erosion, but it can occur in uh, women also, of course, because of that tugging and that pre just pressure from the catheter. And it's like the immune system is attacking that device, which is foreign to it, and it really wants to get rid of it. And there's another one. This is actually one of my patients and you only saw the tears whenever you really lift up the penis and could see it. And again, stones are a big issue. Um, I do see stones um, and they can be really take up the entire bladder. And again, these are formations of calcium that again, uh, immunologic reaction to that foreign object of the catheter. Now, the one problem that we see as nurses that can be so um, frustrating is bypassing around the catheter. And this is when urine escapes around it. Um, and what a lot of nurses will do is let's put in a bigger catheter, let's plug it, you know, because it's leaking and that's really not good because that could cause more trauma. And why this is occurring is that the eye is above um, maybe the level of that bladder neck where there's some urine sitting around the balloon and that, and really a detrusor or bladder contraction can push, push that urine out. Um, this can be a major problem um, for long-term catheters. Um, what I want to stress in this lecture is that us nurses can make a big difference, whoever's caring for. And these are the, all the evidence based. And these are recommendations from the CDC, from the guidelines they put, up in, put out in 2009. They came out for how to prevent urinary tract infections in, with catheters, how to prevent cauties. And these are the different components you want to think about. And I want to go through a few of these because these can make a real difference. Hand washing has been shown to be the key point. Uh, I can't stress that enough. I know that we're really, I think a little bit more cognizant of that with since COVID has come about, but really there's data to show that really nurses are not hands washing as often as they should, physicians are not. And staff that is touching the system really needs to wash their hands. So hand hygiene is so important, but also of course, wear uh, gloves around any type of system. You wanna keep that sterile system. That's a cornerstone infection control, cannot keep dis in interrupting it. If you have to irrigate it, use a three-way catheter. So you're not disconnecting that drainage tube from the catheter and that you can instill that fluid. You wanna go with the smallest um, French size, 14 is recommended with a 10 cc balloon. Larger balloons like 30 cc's can cause more trauma. 
And actually that balloon goes above some of the level of the urine in the bladder. It can cause uh, more urine not to be drained out properly. Uh, when you culture, you should take it from the collection system as opposed to the bag and also as opposed to disrupting the system. So there is a port there. This is especially important in uh, hospitals where you don't want that, where you have such high hospital-associated UTIs, you do not want any problems um, with uh, contaminated urine that you're testing. You want to minimize trauma when you insert. Uh, I'm just looking at a case I've been asked to do where the um, nurse blew up the catheter, um, the balloon in the ure uh, prostatic fossa. This is actually occurring more often than you think. So with men, I say, listen, you really need to think about using maybe a coup tip catheter. Um, and that's really important. Um, and the thing is, is that you wanna make sure it's well lubricated. You wanna make sure you're in the position with men. You know, men have long urethra, so you wanna make sure that that penis is pulled up. So you try to straighten and have those curves. And if you hit resistance at the prostate, really maybe stop, have that individual, you know, take some deep breaths so that you can um, right, make sure you're doing it correctly. You want to maintain that drainage bag in a dependent position. It should be below the bladder, not on the floor though, so that it picks up bacteria from the floor. Of course, hydration is important. We're only recommending that you clean the perineal area once a day. You don't have to coat it with um, some type of betadine ointment or something because you quote unquote want to prevent introduction of bacteria. Actually, that actually harbors bacteria if you're putting a lot of ointment around that meatus, so don't do it. And of course, you want to make sure they have good bowel function. I've had many, many patients, severe constipation where they have stool impaction, where they actually has, the stool has pushed out the bladder. I mean, the catheter with the balloon intact. You wanna empty that at least every eight hours, not let that bag fill up over 400 mLs. Um, this is an important number on bullet two. There's actually research to show contamination from staff who was emptying um, a drainage bag, a, you know, the catheter bag um, with a container and then went over to the next patient and also drained theirs without emptying out or changing the graduated container that they're collecting the urine. It actually that increased caudies, infecting, contaminating that second uh, individual. Um, so you want, if you have multiple drainage devices like the chest tube in that, you want to keep them on opposite sides of, of the um, device. Don't irrigate. As I said, if you think that the, you're questioning the catheter patency, please scan them and see what's in there before you worry about the fact that maybe you have to irrigate it because it's not draining. And if any anytime it's occluded, you wanna replace it um, as opposed to taking the drainage tube out and irrigating it, say with a piston syringe. So, you know, we really, we really do um, not recommend irrigation, uh, especially in long-term uh, patients. I get asked this a lot from my audience when I speak, well, Diane, I have a patient who I've been irrigating for the past 10 years. And I always say, well, don't, if you're doing that, maybe don't stop it, but don't initiate it in new patients. Unless again, you have blood clots and in the hospital, we have to do irrigation, say post-surgery. So, you know, indwelling catheters are a significant source of all infections. Us nurses are integral to making sure that we provide good care to prevent some of the complications. And again, the best prevention is that we don't have to give this lecture because we're not using them so that you remove that catheter. So thanks a lot for having me. Hey, Diane, that was great. <laughs> the crowd goes well. If you could switch off your share now, your screen share. Okay. How's that? Perfect. Now we're back to our friendly group here. And let me just see if I got you here. All right, good. So what I want to do now is switch over to our Q&A section. Um, we do have some questions, and this is when the audience uh, can send in your questions. I see some popping up already. I did have one that was submitted to me, though, ahead of time, so I do want to read that one off. Um, Sandy Brunello said, this is an example of a when a chronic indwelling catheter usage fails a patient. I cared for a middle-aged woman with advanced MS in the home health setting, from 2010 to 2014. She required long-term chronic use of an indwelling catheter for urinary incontinence for years prior to becoming uh, her primary certified WOC nurse. 
the home health agency was specializing in caring for clients who needed WOC nursing expertise. Um, she had no family support, lived alone, relying on day shift caregiver assigned under Texas disability benefits. I can't recall if she only had functional incontinence, but more than likely a neurogenic bladder with retention. She did have chronic involuntary bladder contractions, spasms, and chronic UTIs. The nurses routinely changed her indwelling catheter monthly for years. I, I think we often start thinking of this patient in our head. We've had it. Mm -hmm, By mm -hmm. the time I was assigned to her care in 2010, her urethra and surrounding anatomy had become horribly scarred, hypertrophic, and malformed. Catheter changes had become excruciatingly painful. The agency director of nursing and I frequently consulted with her urologist, troubleshooted styles of indwelling catheters to try along with medication management for the spasms. She started having urine leakage around the catheter with each bladder spasm and then developed sacral pressure injuries as a result. As a team with the client and her urologist, we recommend that she have a urostomy created to eliminate the need for an indwelling catheter. The client knew how drastic this change would be, but ultimately it was the best care decision made for her management of her urinary incontinence needs. And she would like to know what's your thoughts about this case. Yeah, you know, um, that's a great case. And that's actually kind of what you see with chronic use. But I guess it's interesting you went to urostomy because what I probably would have, could she have been switched to a superpubic? Because what you see is a lot of urethral damage there, which is from that transurethral catheter. But the other thing that's something that um, she's bringing, this person's bringing up is that the atrophy of women who are postmenopausal. And then the thing is, is that, you know, I see Dr. Lynn shaking his head, you know, that tissue is very friable at, because we go through menopause and then we put in this foreign object and we have this, you know, material interacting with tissue that's atrophied and is not well nourished. And then probably she broke down even quicker. So, you know, I think what you did there was, I, I think a good solution. And um, the thing is too, is that when you have a long-term patient like that, the odds of getting that catheter out is really low. But again, another option may have been a super pubic. Yeah, thank you. And then I did have another question that came in. This one came in from Erica Eichen uh, from Newcastle, Delaware. When does a indwelling catheter become a chronic indwelling catheter? Two, two point questions. No, several questions here. So that's first question. Yeah, well, that, let's answer that real quick. It's They say um, long-term is over 30 days. Chronic, I don't know if we've really defined. You know, is that one year, six months? But again, the, the rule of thumb is short-term is two to four weeks. Long-term is over 30 days. So. Makes sense. What is the standard care practice for meatal cleaning? How often soap and water versus saline versus antimicrobial cleaner? Yeah, they're just recommending soap and water and really just once a day around the catheter and the, um, you know, meatus. And of course, after a bowel movement or if someone has diarrhea, you know, I mean, you want to just want you know, make sure you get that away. People are recommending if you have someone with um, fecal incontinence or diarrhea that you actually use these rectal devices in addition to a Foley catheter because the odds in a woman is she's going to get infected. So the thing is, is that um, they don't recommend um, betadine actually dries out tissue. So they're not recommending any antiseptic. Um, you know, these alcohol-based clean cleansers, I wouldn't want anybody touching my area down there with those. So I just think soap and water is the best again, once a day or after a bowel movement. Yeah, I think that's, <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. Uh, for someone with an indwelling catheter who gets frequent UTI, is an antimicrobial catheter effective? I know you mentioned the silver, but what do you think like these macrodatin coated, et cetera? I don't think they're available anymore, Vic. It's oh. interesting you bring that up. I'm doing the core curriculum um, and I did it for WOCN around catheters and I really tried again. I don't think they're available. I know the one with macrodantin, which is what you talked about, was taken off the market. So if any of my panelists know, but I don't think they're there. And and what we talked about silver. Now, silver is different. That's embedded in the, the surface. Silver is has, has kind of an antiseptic quality to it. <laughs> but again, there's no data to show that those are better. I have some health systems are swear by them. They think their caudies are done with them, but there's no data and they're more expensive. Um, I do know that when we had the antibiotic before is that the antibiotic kind of wore off the surface of the catheter. So in time, it didn't really matter. You know, you didn't really get that effect of it. And also people worried about resistance because macrobit is something we use a lot with the urine. So I, I but I don't think any more are available, but I, but I may be wrong. That's good. I haven't heard 
one way or the other. I just, the one I knew of is, I guess, no longer there. Um, any questions for the panelists before I switch over to some from the audience? Uh, I was just going to comment that um, Diane's suggestion to put the penis on stretch when inserting the Foley catheter is right on point. And uh, the use of a coude catheter sometimes to overcome an enlarged prostate is also key. The tendency or the inclination to decrease the catheter size is may not be uh, appropriate sometimes. Often when a guy with a big prostate, you want yeah. to increase the size or the diameter of the catheter to facilitate passage of the catheter. That's kind of counterintuitive, but as, some, as urology nurses, Mm -hmm. Everyone knows that you should go up in size and not go down in size. That's a good point. Very good point. So yeah. question for you, Diane, about um, the bladder spasms. Mm -hmm. So um, in our office, our physicians seem to believe, and I feel like it's the opposite, but they feel like increasing the balloon to a 30 cc actually makes that better. And I don't think it does. I see more people with 30 cc balloons having more spasms. Mm -hmm. No, you're right. I mean, that's the belief is that get a bigger balloon, you know, and you'll cut the spasms because remember the spasms, sometimes if there's urine in there, will push urine around the catheter. So they're like, oh, let's put it up bigger, bigger catheter, bigger balloon. No, um, the 30 cc balloon in, in, especially with chronic use of a catheter is almost the size of the bladder. Because remember, if you're continuously draining the bladder, the bladder is a muscle shrinks down. And I think that in time, the detrusor layer the, the, the layer, the internal layer of the bladder actually sits on that balloon. So, you know, putting in a bigger balloon isn't going, I think it's going to irritate it more is what the feeling is. I, I do use um, uh, uh, an, um, anti-muscarinic medication with those patients. I also have had some patients instill oxybutynin in the bladder. That I think has helped too. Um, but remember, bladder spasms is overactivity of the bladder. People have it without catheters right? We see patients every day with OAB. So that's what's happening. Then you're irritating that bladder by putting something in it. So that overactivity may occur more frequently. So no, I don't know why your physicians are doing it. I mean, I think that's a real, real outdated practice, Laurie, but you know what? I see all this kind of stuff everywhere. So, you know, it's probably not only your place, but yeah, a bigger balloon is not going to necessarily be the solution. It's just going to keep spasming. Sure. What I've done in some patients though is I have some chronic patients whose catheters in for incontinence at the, you know, the family wants it because it's easier to care for them, blah, blah, blah. And I've talked them into taking out the catheter for a period of time, like a month, letting the bladder settle down a little bit. And of course, the person will probably be incontinent if they don't have retention or maybe switch intermittent cath for a period of time and then put it back in. But it's kind of like a catheter holiday, you know what I mean? take it out and see. I mean, I don't know. There's no data on this, but sometimes that works. You know, a lot of times families don't want to do that though. The other question I had, um, you mentioned, you know, taking the urine out of the port. Um, but for those patients with the light bag where they yeah. don't use the night bag, um, our practice requires that if we're going to do a urine specimen, we need to change the catheter first. And that's actually exactly what the guidelines say. You're doing good practice. Yeah. That's a really good point. If you don't have a port, the point is not what you're, what you're culturing in the system is, is what's in the system, not what's in necessarily in the bladder. So you want clean urine. And um, there is a small study that, um, you know, it, when you're going to get a culture, you should change the system. Hospitals don't want to do that because they don't want to say they just came from the OR. They don't want to, oh, take it out and put a new one in type of thing. So they don't do it. But you're right. If you have someone at home, you really want a good culture, you're concerned what's in there. Um, then, then, you know, removing the catheter, putting in a new and getting that fresh urine is the best way to do it. I'll tell you that something that everybody has on here has to realize is that over time, all these catheters are going to get infected and I don't have solutions. Um, what we are doing, I don't know if anybody's doing it on this call, but probably Vic, you should do a UTI webinar, but we are having some women and these are women that are independent walking around that have recurrent UTIs. We're doing nighttime bladder installations of genomycin. Um, because genomycin is not, you can reconstitute it with sterile water, is not, does not get absorbed. So they won't become resistant. So what we have them do is 
put it and still in the bladder at bedtime, let it sit in that bladder overnight. And then um, we actually do it for a year. And over a year, you eradicate all bacteria. And you could do that with a catheter by plugging it, you know what I mean? Or clamping it for the night if the patient can tolerate it and let that genomycin sit in there. And I think the University of Michigan with Ann Cameron, who's a urologist there, is, has NIH funding to, check, to study this. But I'm, I'm actually, like this, yeah. I actually had a patient that I would, um, whenever they came in for their catheter changes, I would change the catheter, instill the genomycin and let it dwell for a period of time. And it really actually helped that patient a lot. That's interesting, Laura. Yeah, so the question is how long, you know, do you, can you just do one shot? I, I have a case too that I, I handled a patient for years. He was actually a very well-known lawyer who's since deceased uh, with a catheter and it was a silicone catheter. This man was 80 and never got infection. And I made him come in every three weeks, change that catheter. And I used it all silicone, which I used to be Rochester Medical, which I think when Bard bought them, they did not pull that machine over and keep making it. But I really believe it was, and I don't know whether it was because I changed him before he started with the infection every three weeks or whether it was a silicone. But again, there's a lot of ways to manage these patients. And he really, for years, never got infection and died from something other than a cotty. So I, you know, there's a lot of these kinds of things and I actually, he would be have been one I would have done the genomycin on, but that's a good tip. I like to see more nurses maybe try that and tell us whether that's possible. But I do know that's, um, there's some studies now going on about that. And there's a couple of publications on that. All right, I do have some audience questions coming in. Sandy Brunello ask what evidence is there about staff in hospitals using CHG to cleanse periurethral perineal skin daily? Yeah, there's no data on that. And like I said before, uh, we don't recommend um, some kind of antiseptic, but you know, I do know people do it, but soap and water is still really the best. Absolutely. Um, this came from one of our previous talks and I wanted to ask you about uh, we were talking about how often do you, what's the evidence for how often we should change a Foley catheter, a chronic catheter, because we were discussing the fact that most of this is dogma and we don't know, is there evidence out there? No, there's not. And um, what we have is that um, the routine of every month, which is what home health does a lot, you know, that's on their, on their radar. I come in every month and change that catheter is really based on reimbursement. You know, what they're recommending is that you assess the patient and you assess the patient as far as when do I think I need to change it? Like, I don't know, say they start to get obstruction, problems with biofilms every three weeks, then you should try to change it before that occurs. And we also know there are some individuals that are never going to have a problem with their catheter. Maybe they can go out two months. You should assess the patient. So that's kind of what been my rule of thumb. But I do know with routines within home health and all that, um, but I do know with suprapubic, on average, our staff, they actually come into the urology office. We're changing them, I think, every five weeks of suprapubic. But again, based on no evidence. Yeah. It seems like, as you said, the evidence was, wasn't evidence, it was reimbursement. Yeah. Someone asked here, Vic, I want to go down the belly bags. Belly bags are wonderful. I have used them for years. Um, I, I have people, someone went to the Penn State football game with a belly bag on. I mean... It really, it's, I don't know if you, if you haven't seen it, you, I forget, is it Teleflex that makes them? The thing is, is it's a bag that goes, I think it was actually invented by a urologist that is actually attached to the abdomen. Fantastic for, with super pubic catheters, but I've used them a lot with urethral catheters in men because you have to have the penis go up to then <clears throat> hook into the port for the belly bag. It does not reflux back up into the catheter valve there, but I really, I, I think for someone who's independent, I, I love the belly bags, by the way. I really do. Yeah. I, I've, every patient I've ever used them on, love them. Um, issue sometimes is reimbursement, but yeah. patients are almost willing to pay for it because it's just so more, so much more convenient, mm -hmm. especially people in wheelchairs. They, uh, another good ones for not having to worry about something that's dragging out. Getting right on the floor. Right, right, yeah. right. Uh, Susie Swain said, what do you think about patients that use a plug in their catheter versus a catheter bag? Well, as I said, I think plugs are wonderful. I think you should, if a patient can tolerate them, they're better because it allows the bladder to do its kind of normal fill up uh, and then they empty it. So like I said, this is something in Europe they use all the time, these um, 
that way call them valves, I call them plugs, okay? Um, but, you know, um, maybe at nighttime, that's so they don't worry about the bag hanging next to their bed. Maybe when they go out, now, of course, you're interrupting the system. So you got to decide, is that a, a problem patient who has recurrent UTIs? Is that going to be a problem for them as far as more contamination? But catheter plugs, and I, I have to tell you, um, I'll tell you one case I have. It's really sad. A, a, a professor who fell off a ladder and um, was a paraplegic and cats herself intermittent for years and years came to me and, you know, wanted me to, she was getting more disabled with her hands and dexterity and she wanted to know if there was a better catheter. So I worked with her on trying different intermittent cats and eventually nothing worked. Um, I switched her, I right, right away went to superpubic. This woman was a very in, independent, even though she was in a wheelchair, could not handle the thought of a urethral catheter. Um, so we did that. And, and um, basically she went to a, a, a plug with it and she's now five years out and has just her, it changed her life as far as her independence in that, but she has no problems. And what she does is she uses a plug throughout the day. And she of course has to, it has a little mechanism. So you open it to drain it out. So I think that, you know, plugs are wonderful and they're round guys. You can, you know, a lot of times you'll see them post-surgery for short-term catheterization, but seriously, I would recommend them. So the superpubic valve, the urethral, you know, the plug, the catheter plug, they're all the same thing. And there's a couple of different companies that make them. That little short one that you would hand in your slide, it was like a, a yeah, the belly a button. Yeah, that's a belly button. And that is a neat device. And actually um, I've used it in two patients with superpubic catheters and it really is a plug and then you can open it up and drain it. Again, I've seen this in Europe. I haven't seen it here. It's interesting how uh, outside the US we see much more push for independence. I think in patients who are here, we're in this chronic kind of, but maybe our population is older, I don't know. But um, I will tell you that this population is going to increase. There's been a couple publications in the intermittent catheterization literature of spinal cord injury patients who are living longer, who are, are tired of it, performing intermittent cath and who choose to go to an indwelling. And um, we have a high spinal cord population in this country because of our gun violence. Uh, yeah. And it's only increasing. So the issue is, is that we're going to see different needs for technology around here. And I think that these indwellings, uh, and again, I think us nurses manage this. Um, urology nurses or just home care nurses. And we need to start demanding better technology maybe or better answers to these things or maybe better research. Yeah, I agree. Uh, Jackie Boyd says or asks, what do you recommend for complaints from men uh, for pain at the tip of the penis? We always recommend to lubricate with ointment, but this sounds like it increases uh, infection potential. What are your thoughts? Yeah, that's a great question. And I hear what you're saying is we probably put some lidocaine there, but um, I had to tell you that a lot of people think pain at the tip of the penis is referred from the bladder spasm in that. I don't really have a good answer for that. Um, it could be the reacting to the type of material. So I always say, can you change the material of the catheter to, to try a different one? Perhaps that's what the irritation and discomfort is. I I don't think that coating it with say lidocaine is really the best because over time it's not going to work, but also you're right. You're going to harbor bacteria there, but I don't have a good answer for that. Um, and I do have men who will tell me that it hurts so much da, 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 and I can't stand it, but I don't know if our, if our panel has any suggestions on that. Actually, I do. I, I, I tend to like to tape the catheter to the, not the catheter itself, but the tubing to the patient's leg because I find that that pulling to one side or the other, pulling against the urethra can cause a lot of that irritation. And I can wow. speak from a personal side. I had to wear one after my surgery and anytime it wasn't taped down where it could move, it, it bothered me. But long as it was secured so that it wasn't pulling against my urethra, it was, it was tolerable. That's interesting. So that's, and the urea it could also be possibly the balloon pulling on the bladder neck that's getting referred pain. That's a really yeah. good point. So what in what Vic's saying is better anchoring, better securement of the catheter is what, you know. And there's a number of devices out there, but I always find the tapes available trying yeah, to find right, these right, quick right. lock devices. And, and some of those are really hard to get off sometimes. Mm -hmm. uh, Carrie Rausch said, we are having trouble getting genomycin. 
I used to do weekly, weekly tapering to monthly bladder installations on community dwelling females with recurrent UTIs. Know anything about a shortage of genomycin or? No, I, um, I, someone else had mentioned that to me. I, we had one, I think last year, but then it, it um, we, it, it cleared up. So I'm not sure, but <clears throat> if that's a problem, I mean, I hear you. I don't know of anything else. The only thing about genomycin, remember, it's not absorbed. That's because we don't want other antibiotics that they get resistant to. So that's why we're, we're going with genomycin. Have you used neomycin? I don't know whether that's. No, I, yeah, or... I, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know if anybody's tried it. Jen has been in the literature and again, maybe Vic, but you know, that's where I see the use. Yeah. So someone then... asked here about Orgel. I don't, I don't know about Orgel, you guys. I know we use that for kids for teeth, but I, I'm really not sure. Again, <laughs> it's a gel. So. I'd worry about infections, but you know, I always say to people, okay, if you've got a patient who's okay, no infections, it's not probably going to cause an issue, then try it because I know how frustrating and difficult these patients are, and we don't really have solutions. Someone's asking, how often do you drain uh, the bladder with a plug? Again, there's no guidelines around that. It depends, of course, how, how much they're drinking. If they're drinking a lot, they're going to make more urine. So I think you've got to play it by ear. I don't know, maybe you don't want it to be too much urine in that bladder because you're probably going to have a spasm. So I think it's individualized and the patient's going to have to see what kind of output they have as far as draining. And then can you discuss patients with pontic bifida? Yeah, you know, <clears throat> latex is really becoming a huge issue. Um, I know many, many, many health systems where they're latex-free 100% because there's been so many cases actually in nurses who developed allergies from acquired latex allergy. Because we're so exposed to latex in health systems with so many different products, people are shying away from that. I think in general, we should not use latex catheters. And you have to be careful because what they talk about is the fact that they're not, they're silicone, but the balloon may be latex. So when you look at these catheters, you have to really question, you know, are they 100% latex free? I do know, and I don't know if it's out yet, someone's going to develop a um, silicone bonded type of that will be not considered latex. Um, it's a latex bonded or something like that. So I know new technology is coming out there, but a lot of problems we see with patients, even with bladder spasms, even with like erosion, may be actually a sign of a latex allergy. And you really need to ask what is that makeup of that catheter? Is every part of it latex-free? Um, and I think that this is actually going to be a growing problem in healthcare in general. Yeah, that's a good point. Now, I have a question. I don't know if you've heard about this or any thoughts, but they said that because of this generation of kids that are not generation, but recently the births during COVID or post-COVID, these babies are not getting exposed to the, we talked about the biofilms, but the normal human biome that kind of protects us day to day, they're not getting this exposure. And what are we going to be looking at because of that down the line? Well, you know, it's it, this whole issue around viral and bacterial, this exposure. I, I'm, it's funny you say that is that I read somewhere exactly what you're saying. They're seeing more infections with these kids because they're not exposed. And I, I don't know what that's going to show us in time. You know, the thing is, is that, you know, when we put something in the body, I don't, I mean, we're just so used to doing that, right? Right away, oh, let's just catheterize them, blah, blah. We don't really realize the impact over time. And I really want, you know, our audience to realize that. And we're so used to, um, you know, catheterizing individuals. I, you know, I, and I didn't put in this slide, <clears throat> slide, but maybe Vic, sometime if you want, I'll present our research that we did uh, Suna um, supported a um, grant where we looked at long-term indwelling urinary catheter use, and we did Philadelphia, and we did actually Scotland, and it was during COVID, which was so difficult to do enrollment. But I have to tell you guys is that when I when I did the audits, um, we decided to use our, our patients that were coming in for catheter changes in urology because we wanted home care pa patients, but you know because of COVID, um, they weren't they were diff it was difficult for them to do the study. They were selling you day with COVID patients to, upon discharge. But most of the patients I did the records on review on was suprapubic. And, you know, we are not documenting in our charts what type of catheter, any problems with these catheters. 
And these individuals, and, and I'm in a big system, big urology department, we're coming in every five weeks for these changes. And I just think that us, we as nurses have to do better care. Now I will tell you, we're having different levels of nurses change these catheters, aren't we? And, and you know, Dr. Lynn's laughing, isn't that true? And I, I hate to say that's some of the problem. And we're not evidently educating the different levels to the degree that they should be. And I think that is gonna be an ongoing issue. Yeah, that's a good point because we don't know what the effect is going to be having with, um, you know, as you say, it was used to be an RN doing all this and now it's being passed down to medical assistants who are getting, you know, less and less training. I mean, even RN training in urology is very minimal and probably non almost non-existent in the uh, MA studies or uh, setting. So you know, I teach, um, I teach both now at the graduate level and undergraduate level of school nursing at Penn. They have me do one hour on bowel and bladder. They do, I do not, I do not talk about devices. And I've talked to them about it. And their answer is there's so much in the curriculum. There's so much in the curriculum we have to follow. And I don't know what you find in urology offices, but our residents, they may put in catheters in the OR, but they have no idea how to teach uh, for an indwelling for going home with it. And also they don't really know how to teach intermittent catheterization. So we're really not doing training. It's kind of us nurses own it. And the training that we're getting at the undergraduate and graduate level, I think is so, it's not enough, but it's a problem. Yeah, that's why I what agree. you're doing here, Vic, is really helpful. We got to get it out more, huh? Yeah, that's, uh, it, it's growing. So the audience keeps getting bigger and getting big names like yourself to show up for our show is huge. Um, but, uh, I, I agree. That's kind of why I started it. You know, this is a profession that meant a lot to me. And I, I thought that, Hey, this is the time to give back. So if we can share what we've learned and it's right. kind of a unique situation where we can get a group of experts together and kind of chew on the, you know, we all have our, our, our stuff that we're really good at, but when we put our minds together, we're really great. And I think that's, uh, the thing that Euronurse hopefully brings that, different than what everything else out there is. So right, yeah, that was right. great. Did get a question that popped up here. Sorry to belabor the silicon point, uh, but is there any criteria beyond latex allergy to determine which patients should have a silicon catheter inserted? Well, what I do is um, UTIs, recurrent UTIs, because the silicone has a, a bigger diameter. So perhaps, I don't know, biofilms and bacteria isn't going to adhere too much. I also view a lot of these problems. We see um, bladder spasms, uh, leakage around, and even pain as maybe reacting to the material. So I go to silicone. Silicone is a um, stiffer catheter. And that's why some of us shy away from it because maybe it's more, um, you know, it's maybe more discomfort with it. But I really think that um, I, I kind of like silicone. I think it's a better material for catheters like I said, I don't know of anybody yet that has 100% silicone out there, um, but you know, I'm, I'm sure there is one. Um, I, I think that that's um, really, um, you may be seeing, oh, you're showing one, Dr. Lynn, right? Who, who is that? I'm actually playing with a, this is a great segue to next week's Euronurse presentation. This is a duet catheter. It has two balloons and it's, it's a silicone balloon. A silicone catheter is really uh, pliable. You know, I had that in my slide set and I took it out. I want to hear about that because that is actually probably the, the uh, newest design that we've seen happen in this field, right? With the two balloons. And I think I'd love to hear when you're using it in that. And, and I don't know if you saw that. You saw the silicone was clear. I like the fact that we can see the urine coming through the catheter. I don't know why they made, yeah, right? Why they made these, yeah, you see the two balloons there. And there's some data to show that, that that's that's better, right? And I think that, yeah, I, I do think that this is, and it's so weird because I did have that and I took it out, but you see you have two balloons. And then the issue is, is it help with drainage? Does it help with, you know, decreasing spasms that we don't know, but um, I, I want to hear that. I'm going to come on next week and listen to you because I do think that that is one design change that Maybe we'll take, I don't know how often it's being used, but here, what's your opinion of that? But yeah, again, I, like, I like how clear that is. Yeah, you see, you're using too, Laurie? How about, well, how about the removal? Like I know with silicone catheters, they're a lot more uh, because they are stiffer. And even with the two balloons, 
is it more uncomfortable, obviously, to pull out of patients because of that, the lips that it has? It just seems, especially with super pubic tubes, when you're pulling it out, it's almost like you really got to pop it out. And I, it, that's what kind of creeps me out a little bit about silicones well, and been, removing them. Especially. This, this is one that I've used throughout the weeks and uh, it's still very, very smooth. Yeah, that's I see that. But I think I that, agree that. Laurie, yeah, but, you're, but Laurie's bringing up a good point. What happens is incrustations actually develop around the balloon. And, you know, and, and as you, I mean, I, I'm, I'm obsessed when I take out catheters, I take pictures of them and all that, because you're right, and, and it can be tugging. Also, there can be incrustations at, not at the balloon, but just at the catheter at that neck, so then you're pulling it. I don't think there's anything to say two balloons is going to cause more issues, though. And I do think silicone has less incrustations. So, you know, it is a trade-off, but I, as I say to nurses, if you're having really a big problem removing a chronic catheter, then maybe you need to remove it earlier. You know, maybe that four weeks doesn't work. You need to come out in three weeks. And, you know, people tell me all the time, well, Diane, how do they um, pay for that? You've got to document. I need to come out, you know, this catheter needs changed every three weeks because of these reasons. And I've never had insurers deny that. So, I don't know. I, it is an issue, though. There's no question. And people say, well, then you got to tug it out. And super pubic, you're right, Lori, but I think it's the track more so. The other thing about super pubic, you must insert it within a very short period of time. This is very important. Um, I've had how many people where my best case was they had fecal incontinence, super pubic tube. They had a diaper around the person. The aide came in and cut the diaper off and cut the tube. Okay. So I know it came out. They waited and went to the ER six hours later. We had to do a whole new procedure. And this was a very frail older individual. So be careful with super pubics. You take them out, something needs to go back in. And that's probably another lecture on how to change super pubics. And again, there's nothing in the literature on this. Nurses are not writing about changing. You know, people ask me, what kind of catheter do you use? It's the same way I use a urethral catheter. Is it a 14 French? All those questions. I, I don't have a good answer for you because there's nothing to, to talk. What type of insertion tray do we use? Is it different? Um, so the thing is, um, but I, I want to stress to our audience, they're being used more. We're going to see more super pubic catheters being used because of the urethral issues, the chronicity of this problem. And even though we say we don't want to use Foley catheters, they're here, you know, and they're not going away. Um, and you know, maybe in hospitals, we'll see a decrease, but for chronic use with the aging population, I think we're going to see more. Yeah, good point. Uh, April McGriff offered this. Uh, our facility requires new nurses to spend a week in the urology clinic to gain a catheter experience. That's a great idea. And she also agreed about the residents. I painfully watched a resident attempt to put a catheter in a patient. It had to respectfully take over. Well, the same. That's a really I think good point. I mean, you're just you're exactly what I see. So you're right on. And, and you know, and I, I, I don't know. I mean, I try to, I think that this whole area of catheters devices, no one's really addressing in urology. We, um, and I think that's, uh, nurses are managing it. That's the bottom line. And us urology nurses are the experts. I, I firmly believe that. Absolutely. I always say if, if somebody had to change my catheter, I hope it's me. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's a good one. At least with as much experience as I have, because... <laughs> I got a vested interest in that one. Yeah. When it comes to putting anything in the mail, you read through, once you get to the external sphincter, and if you encounter any sort of resistance, the important thing is to just kind of hang out there for a second. Yes. Tell the patient to relax your legs, relax your buttock area, wiggle your toes, and then just kind of apply gentle pressure. Don't try to force it in. No, you're so it'll, right. It'll you're just so pop right, right in. We no, also tell people to try to act like they're urinating. Well, what you're both describing, though, is a way to relax the sphincter or open it up. And um, I, I think that, you know, what John said is good is <clears throat> he's talking about relaxing, you know, try to just stop. I tell patients, take some slow, deep breaths. Lori, I've also heard, try to think about your urinating, um, whatever, but don't force it. And also do not blow up that balloon unless you're really confident that you're in the bladder. Um, I wrote up a thing um, that was, it's still on HRQ um, about, they asked me to comment on a, this ca a case again, exactly what we're talking about. They blew up the, um, 
balloon in the prostatic fossa. And I, I think that, you know, you as nurses, we have to be careful on this because this I've had a couple of cases where I've been expert opinion on this, where the nurse has done that in the ER. Um, and, you know, it messed up. Some One guy had Peyronie's disease, so he had curvature already. It was just a nightmare, a large prostate. And, you know, it's it's not good. And the thing is, you have to make sure that you're in the bladder um, when you blow up that balloon. Um, and actually, I'd like to hear what you have to say, John, about the double balloon, because is that going to be more of a problem whenever we use two balloons? So I don't know, but we can discuss that, I guess, on the next call. So actually, the I think it's two weeks. The company is going to have their rep talk about the that new catheter that with double. Balloons. Oh, is it? Well, I'm going to have to. Yeah, yeah I'm going to have to so sign tune up. In. Yeah, I will. Yeah, definitely. We'd like to have have you join us more often. Um, I was going to make a comment. I said the, the one thing you can tell the difference between somebody who's experienced at putting catheters in and not experienced is the experienced person knows when to quit. Oh, yeah. You know when you're yeah, in the, yeah, over your say, head. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Say, listen, I can't do this and help. That that's a really yeah. good point. If you don't feel comfortable doing it, find somebody else. One of the things that we did um, with Cotty is that um, when we saw a unit had an increased Cotty rate, what we did is we literally took the the um, you know the mannequin from the school of nursing, and we brought it out to the unit. And every shift, we watched the nurses catheterize. And that was an eye opener because I did that uh, and I went in on the night shift and watched. And you guys, you know, nurses with their hair pulled back. Now, this is before COVID. Maybe they're wearing caps, but I don't see it. And she's capping and her hair is just sweeping. The ponytail is just sweeping the sterile field. Not thinking about that. You, you know, just simple things that, you know, the where they place the things. We talk about a coup day tip, how they're positioning the penis to put it in. And we just did that because, and what we found is actually the older nurses were so entrenched in their routine that it was not, you know what I mean? It was difficult to change that or say, no, wait a minute, why are you doing that? And the newer ones couldn't seem to manipulate all the different pieces of the cath tray, you know what I mean? So I don't know, I just, it, it really, I recommend hospitals get those mannequins and, and actually educate the nurses, especially new nurses, it's nice to hear that someone's saying that we have them spend time in the urology clinic. I think that's an excellent idea for any new nurse, especially on a unit where you're going to have a lot of catheterizations. I, I don't think we can assume they're coming out of school learning, knowing how to do this. And also maybe they cap one or two people, but was it a problem person, right? Was it a problem patient? So they knew how to troubleshoot. I don't know, but um it's a catheterization is an issue. There's no question, especially on, with nurses' knowledge and skill. In the last couple of minutes, I was going to say that consider using a plug. I love plugs uh, because it allows the natural cycling of the, the juice or the bladder. Yeah, I, I'm with you 100%, and I just don't see them used, and I don't know why, and they're not offered for, for some of these long-term. Um, and it's really could be a, a good option. Vic, would you mind welcoming the uh, participants from today? Sure. John normally runs the list down, but I can hear his voices struggling here. Uh, thanks for showing up. We have April, Diane, Erica, Jackie, Jean, uh, Joan, Carrie, Leo, Mary, Melanie, Neil, Olive, Rebecca, Rhonda, Robin, Sandy, Susie. And if I missed your name, sorry about that. But hey, Diane, it's been a pleasure again Panelists couldn't do this without you. It's always great to have you here. Uh, just a plug for next week's show. Be sure to show up because next week we're going to have a Hollister representative and one of our past presidents from SUNA, Marianne Wasner, is going to be speaking on Hollister's intermittent catheters. She's going to go over what the they have to offer and what's uh, new and exciting and maybe some reimbursement stuff and she'll be available for questions. And that's uh, one of the benefits we have is that we can bring in the industry as well as the uh, the, the top experts. Um, hey, and if, if you haven't gotten enough of your fill today, you can always join us for the after show. Just hit that or after party, just hit that button that says after party, go to euronurse.com hit the after party, it'll instantly transport you. And Diane, if you want to join us, I almost promise you it will instantly transport you. That one seems to work. Okay. That's where All we can right, just kind of ask general questions, hang out. Um, but uh, it's it's uh, going to go on as soon as we sign off of this one. Again, 
Thanks, Diane. It was a pleasure having you. Uh, John, hope your voice comes back. <laughs> and Lori, always a pleasure to have you on the on the panel. Uh, all you folks that joined us, we had a great group, a number, a great large number of people showing up. And I know there's a big audience on our YouTube channel too. So keep supporting the program and we'll keep bringing it to you. We'll see you all next week. Thank Thanks, you, everyone. Diane. Thanks. Thanks so much.